And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. <clears throat> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is March 24th, 83rd day of the year. 282 days remain till the year is over with. And there are a number of, um, since someone asked for me to give a list of the various holidays on each particular day. Today is National Cheesecake Day, National Cocktail Day, National Chocolate Covered Raisins Day. Who comes up with these? World Tuberculosis Day, Flatmates Day, March Madness, National Introverts Week, and we are still in Ramadan, and it's National Women's History Month. My, uh, ultra-liberal wife wanted me to make sure to make mention of that. The uh, From time to time, I give you her views on various uh, things. She uh, certainly has um, a somewhat, shall we say, unique view of a lot of things. But then most liberals do. On this day in history, in 1199, King Richard I of England is wounded by a crossbow bolt while fighting in France, leading to his death on April 6th. The uh, 1387 English victory over a Franco-Castilian Flemish fleet in the Battle of Margate off the coast of Margate. 1401, the Turco-Mongol Emperor Timur sacks Damascus. First time that had happened. 1603, James VI of Scotland is proclaimed King James I of England and Ireland upon the death of Elizabeth I. 1603, Takagawa Ayasu is, um, all right, once again, 1603, Takagawa Ayasu is granted the title of Shogun from Emperor Goyozai and establishes the Tokugawa shogunate in Edo, Japan. Edo, I believe, became eventually Tokyo. 1663, the province of Carolina is granted by charter to eight lords proprietor and reward for their assistance in restoring Charles II of England to the throne. The um, 1720, Count Frederick of Hesse-Cassel is elected uh, king of Sweden by the Reichstag of the Estates and after his consort, Eureka Eleonora abdicated the throne on uh, February 29th. 1721, Johann Sebastian Bach dedicated six concerts to Margrave Christian Ludwig of Brandenburg Swood, now commonly called the Brandenburg Concertos. 1765, Great Britain passes the Quartering Act that requires the 13 colonies to house British troops. I doubt there was any reimbursement. 1794 in Krakow, Tadeusz Kosciuszko announces a general uprising against Imperial Russia and the Kingdom of Prussia and assumes the powers of commander-in-chief of all the Polish forces. 1829, the Parliament of the UK passes the Roman Catholic Relief Act of 1829, allowing Catholics to serve in Parliament. 1832, in Hiram, Ohio, a group of men beat and tar and feather Mormon leader Joseph Smith. He, uh, founded the Mormon religion, don't you know? 1854. Um, 
President Jose Griego Monegas abolished just slavery in Venezuela. 1860, Sakura Damon incident, Japanese Chief Minister Taro Idli Oosuke is assassinated by Ronin Samurai outside the Sakurada Cape of Edo Castle. <clears throat> 1869, the last of Tidokawu's forces surrendered to the New Zealand government, ending his uprising. <coughs> Excuse me. 1870, a Chilean prospecting party led by uh, Jose Diaz Gana discovers the silver ores of Caracoles in the Bolivian portion of uh, Atacama Desert, leading to the last of Chilean silver rushes and a diplomatic dispute over its taxation between Chile and Bolivia. 1878, the British frigate HMS Eurydice sinks. 300 die. 1882, Robert Koch announces the discovery of uh, the bacterium responsible for tuberculosis. 1900, Mayor of New York City, Robert Anderson Van Wyck, breaks ground for a new underground rapid transit railroad that would link Manhattan and Brooklyn. 1900, the Carnegie Steel Company is formed in New Jersey. Its capitalization of $180 million is the, the largest to date. 1921, the 1921 Women's Olympiad began in Monte Carlo, becoming the first international women's sport event. 1927, Nanking Incident. Foreign warships bombard Nanking, China, in deference to uh, the foreign citizens within the city. 1934, the Tidings-McDuffie Act is passed by the Congress, allowing the Philippines to become a self-governing commonwealth. 1944, German troops massacred 335 Italian civilians in Rome. Also on this date, 1944, in an event later dramatized in the movie The Great Escape, 76 Allied prisoners of war began breaking out of the German camp Stalag Luft III. 1946, a British cabinet mission uh, arrives in India to discuss and plan for the transfer of power from the British Raj to Indian leadership. 1949, Hans Albin Rauter, Chief SS and Police Leader in the Netherlands, is convicted and executed for crimes against humanity. 1961, the Quebec Board of the French Language is established. 1972, direct rule is imposed on Northern Ireland by the government of the UK under Edward Heath. 76, in Argentina, the armed forces overthrow the constitutional government of President Isabel Perón and Start a seven-year dictatorial period, so style the national reorganization process. For the good of the people, of course. 1977, Maraji Desai becomes the Prime Minister of India. First Prime Minister not to belong to the Indian National Congress. 1980, El Salvadorian Archbishop Oscar Romero is assassinated while celebrating Mass in San Salvador. 1982, Bangladeshi President Abdus Tatar is deposed in a bloodless coup led by Army Chief Lieutenant General Hussein Muhammad Ershad, who suspends the Constitution and imposes martial law. 1986, the Lasco gas explosion leads to new UK laws on landfill gas migration and gas protection on landfill sites. 1989, in Prince William Sound in Alaska, the Exxon Valdez spills 240,000 barrels of crude oil after running aground. 
1990, Indian intervention in the Sri Lankan Civil War ends with the last ship of uh, Indian peacekeeping forces leaving Sri Lanka. 1993, Comet Shoemaker Levy 9 is discovered by Carolyn and Eugene Shoemaker and David Levy in the uh, Palomar Observatory in California. 1998, Mitchell Johnson and Andrew Golden, ages 11 and 13 respectively, fire on teachers and students at Westside Middle School in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Five people are killed and ten are wounded. 1998, a tornado sweeps through Duntan in India, killing 250 and injuring over 3,000 others. Also on this same date, in 1998, Dr. Rudiger Marmulia performed the last computer-assisted bone segment navigation at the University of Regensburg in Germany. I'm sorry, he performed the first computer-assisted. I can't read my own handwriting. 1999, Kosovo War. NATO begins attacks on Yugoslavia without United Nations Security Council approval, marking the first time NATO's attacked a sovereign country. 1999, a lorry carrying margarine and flour catches fire inside the Mont Blanc Tunnel, creating an inferno that eventually kills 38 people. 2003, the Arab League votes 21 to 1 in favor of resolution demanding an end to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. 2008, Bhutan officially becomes a democracy with its first ever general election. 2015, German Wings Flight 9525 crashes in the French Alps in an apparent pilot mass suicide, murder suicide, killing all 150 people on board. 2018, Syrian Civil War. Turkish Armed Forces and the Syrian National Army take full control of the Afrin district, marking the end of the Afrin Offensive. 2018, students across the U.S. staged the March for Our Lives, demanding gun control in response to the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. Now let me tell you something about marches and demonstrations and all this. They may get front page position on the evening news, but it doesn't accomplish diddly. 2019, Jakarta, MRT, Rapid Transit System in Jakarta began operation. You know, there's been so many um, demonstrations and everything from Tenement Square to the one I just mentioned. And at the end of the day, what have they accomplished? Made a few student leaders well-known. Uh, David Hogg is trying to parlay that and uh, run for office. Um, and yet if you listen to him more than 20 minutes, you need to take a nap and take a bath. I'm not really sure what he thinks he's accomplishing, but apparently he thinks people hang on his every word. Uh, unfortunately, I personally, I think he's incorrect. You know, in response to marches and demonstrations and student leaders and all this, when I was in high school, the, the big racial marches were going on. And we had a black female who lived and breathed politics. And she styled herself the leader of her people. And no matter what happened, if she got annoyed, 
She would call us walkout, and every one of her little puppets would follow her out into the parking lot. And they would stand there till their demands were met. And she would jump on the phone, and she would call the, the local newspapers who would dutifully report all her ramblings. And she believed she was going to be a political leader. Because her people followed her. Well, as dumb as she was, what she was striking for, other than personal aggrandizement, uh, had some basis in reality. Unlike David Hogg and the current crop. Greta Thunberg, who's just been given a doctorate by a university, which just goes to prove the old adage, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. She has caused more trouble, and she gets a doctorate. So you have to wonder exactly uh, when the inmates started running the asylum. Well, the um, yesterday's show was about strange crimes and stupid criminals. And I've got uh, some other stories I've collected over the years. If I come across something odd, I'll make a note of it and the because uh, you have to wonder about the the intelligence of some of the folks in one particular case a young lady posted uh, a video on her Facebook page talking about what the project she and her friends were involved in. Well, the video showed her and her friends manufacturing meth. The video led to a number of arrests for drug offenses. And the primary evidence against them? The video that she posted. Her name was Jennifer Harrington. Now, in Columbus, Ohio, police had a a Facebook Warrant Wednesday program where they posted a mugshot of various people and they put up a mugshot of a young lady named Monica Hargrove. Well, she wasn't happy with the photo, so she called and the police said, I want my picture down. And the police told her, well, come on in and we'll talk about it. And she did, and they arrested her on the outstanding warrant that put her on the department's Facebook page in the first place. Again, you have to wonder about the intelligence of some people. In 2014, after eluding North Carolina police for nine months on felony burglary charges, Bradley Hardison entered a, a donut-eating contest. And he wolfed down eight glazed donuts in two minutes and won. But that was the good news. This was a good news, bad news scenario. The bad news, the contest was part of the Elizabeth City Police Department's National Night Out Against Crime event. 
When a newspaper printed Hardison's picture the next day, the police had him. The deputy arrested him said, I did congratulate him. He can eat a lot of donuts. But it got him arrested. Well, you know, some people become internationally known for the wrong reasons. Let's talk about Jack Ruby. Dallas Trip Cub operator. Small-time mobster. The man who shot Lee Harvey Oswald on national TV. Now, Oswald, of course, was the alleged killer of President Kennedy. And, interestingly enough, even though all the books say he was the assassin, he was never arrested as the assassin. He was never indicted as the assassin. Never had his day in court. He was actually arrested for shooting uh, Officer Tippett. And there's no proof he even did that. Now, back to Jack Ruby. We have no idea why, really, he shot Lee Harvey Oswald. It was November 24th, 1963, in the basement of the Dallas Jail, of all places which at the time was crowded with police officers, reporters, and cameramen. Which again calls into question the intelligence of a whole lot of people. One of the most wanted people in the country, and anybody and their dog could wander in to where they were going to transport him. In fact, Ruby walked right up to Oswald and shot him. The gun he used was a 38 caliber Colt Cobra revolver he bought at Raised Hardware and Sporting Goods on the, the advice of a Dallas police detective. Security, don't you know? Well, the gun was given back to Ruby's family, where it promptly became involved in a legal battle over Ruby's estate between the lawyer who was appointed executor and Ruby's brother Earl. It wouldn't be resolved until 1991. When a judge found for Earl Ruby, who immediately put the gun up for auction and sold it to a collector named A.V. Puglis for $220,000 for a gun they probably sold for, at that point in time, uh, <coughs> or $400 at the most. 1992, a friend of bought it, brought it to Washington, D.C. and offered to show it to the Speaker of the House, Tom Foley. Well... Knee-jerk reaction, the gun was seized by police and almost destroyed according because D.C. has strict gun control laws. Lawyers were able to get it back, though. November 24, 1993, the 30th anniversary of the shooting, Puglis had Earl Ray fire 100 shots with a gun and offered to spend shells for sale, $2,500 apiece. They actually sold a few, which just goes to show there's an idiot born every minute. Well, you know, sometimes the stories of crimes are inflated. There was a traveler visiting New York City, met an attractive woman in a bar, and 
Took her back to his hotel room. Next thing he knows, he's lying in a bathtub filled with ice and surgical tubings coming out of two freshly stitched wounds on his lower chest. There's a note by the tub that says, Call 911, we removed your left kidney. Doctors in the emergency room tells him he's the victim of thieves who steal organs for transplants. Well, this particular story was traced by French folklorist Veronique Champion Vincent to uh, Honduras and Guatemala, where rumors began circulating in 1987 that uh, babies had been kidnapped and murdered for their organs. The culprits? Wealthy Americans who needed transplants. And from there, the story spread to South America, then all over the world, and whenever these stories surface, including in the U.S., newspapers report them as fact. Which leads you to, to question the, um, the intelligence of certain people who call themselves reporters. Well, national and international agencies have investigated these claims and haven't been able to substantiate even a single case of organ theft anywhere in the world. In fact, um, one uh, talking head said the incredible stories ignored the complexity of organ transplant operations, which would preclude any such quick removal and long-distance shipment of body parts. It's not an easy uh, do-it-yourself removal and transport program. It takes a a, uh, large infrastructure. It wouldn't be done in a hotel bathroom. Well, let's go to Perm, Russia for our next interesting story. They spent a fortune on a crime-fighting robot designed to patrol streets and beam video to police stations alerting officers to crimes in progress. After just three hours on the job, the six-foot-tall, egg-shaped robot broke down. The reason it broke down? It was raining. Nobody anticipated what would happen if its electrical system was exposed to rain. Duh. You know, you hear stories about uh, murders every day. In fact, we've become a little bit uh, complacent in regard to murders. But you ever wonder who the youngest convicted murderer was? A 12-year-old by the name of Curtis Jones, convicted in 1999. The oldest, Leonard Nathan Sherman, from Daly City, California. He was 85 years old in 1999 when he got life in prison for shooting his sister. Now, I've known a lot of siblings who would claim that shooting their sibling was in fact self-defense because it would drive them crazy. Well, there have been some strange crimes committed. A man by the name of Alfred Packer, a self-proclaimed mountain man, um, was responsible for some truly bizarre crimes. Born in Colorado in 1847, he drifted into the Utah Territory, supported himself as a small-time con artist, 
Fall of 1873 persuaded 20 greenhorns to grubstake an expedition to the headwaters of the Gunnison River in Colorado Territory. He swore that stream was full of gold and promised to lead them to it if they financed the operation. Well, with Packard leading, they went into the San Juan Mountains and promptly got lost. party was near starvation when they stumbled into the winter quarters of a friendly Ute tribe. The Ute uh, tribe nursed them back to health, but the leader chief or a, uh, advised them to turn back. He said the winter snows had blocked all the trails. Well, ten members of the party listened and went back to Utah. The other ten still believed in Parker, uh, Packer's tales of gold-filled creeks. Continued with him. Days later, exhausted and out of food again, they found refuge in a deserted cabin. Well, most of the remaining members are now ready to give up and go back to Salt Lake City. At least they get something to eat. The one exception was Alfred Packer. When the others fell asleep, Packer shot four of them in the head, and the fifth woke up and tried to defend himself, but uh, Packer killed him with the barrel of his rifle, robbed him, and used him for food. Packed up enough human jerky to uh, get back to Los Pinos uh, agency. When he arrived, he shocked everybody asking for whiskey instead of food. Suspicions of uh, wrongdoing on his part grew when he flashed a big bankroll. His explanations for what happened to everybody were vague and contradictory. First, he claimed he was attacked by natives. Then he claimed that some of his party had gone mad and attacked him. April 4, 1874, two of Chief Ori's uh, braves found the human remains. General Charles Adams locked him up and dispatched a lawman named Lauder uh, to the cabin to investigate. Well, while Lauder was away, Packer escaped. Returned to Utah for 10 years as uh, John Swartz until a member of the original party he had led into the mountains recognized him. He was arrested March 12, 1884 and returned to Colorado for trial. Well, he proclaimed his innocence, but as the evidence against him mounted, he finally confessed. He reveled in the attention his trial gave him and even lectured on the merits of human flesh. Well, the judge wasn't... Rep um, impressed and according to the reports he said Alfred G. Packer you no good son of a bitch you're gonna hang by the neck until you're dead now the crime was committed in 1873 in the territory of Colorado the trial began in 1884 in the state of Colorado but the state constitution adopted in 1876 didn't address such a crime, so the, the charge had to be reduced to manslaughter. He was sentenced to prison, and he was a model prisoner, paroled after 16 years. 1907, Alfred G. Packer died quietly in his sleep as visions of sugar plums danced in his head. Well, you know, we... I've all grown up on stories of the FBI being the, the premier law enforcement agency this country has. Well, there are times, and some of the agents I've known, I put more faith in the Keystone Cops. But what does the FBI do when it can't find a body? 
Well, bomb-sniffing dogs can smell materials used to make explosives. Drug-sniffing dogs can sniff out uh, marijuana stashed in a school locker. Human remains detection dogs, or HRD dogs, are trained to recognize the smell of death. And they do it with amazing accuracy. A trained dog can detect the scent of a dead body on the ground, even if it's been removed from the spot a year earlier. HRD training starts with fresh scent sources. And yes, it's not exactly a... Uh, an innervating process. Dogs learn to sniff out hair and bone and teeth and tissue and blood and other bodily fluids, but not from live humans. No, no, from corpses. By the end of the training, HR dig dogs can find bodies both above and below the ground. They could even tell if a body's been dumped in a lake. How, you might ask? By sniffing the water surface for tiny gas bubbles thieving from a corpse rotting underwater. Well, the FBI usually calls an HRD dogs to find a specific missing person. And if that person is a uh, murder victim, finding the body is a crucial step in solving the crime. So, thanks to the HRD dogs, the FBI knows where to look. So, if you hear somebody say the FBI's gone to the dogs, that's probably what they're doing. You know, in the 1990s, speaking of the FBI, Frederick uh, Whitehurst became the first agent to successfully blow a whistle on misconduct in the FBI. Whitehurst, who held a doctorate in chemistry from Duke University, was the senior explosive expert in the FBI's crime lab. When the FBI concluded that the suspects in the first World Trade Center bombing of 1993 had manufactured a urea nitrate explosive, Whitehurst saw irregularities in the report. He conducted his own investigation and concluded there was no proof and that urea could have come from 80 gallons of sewage scattered over the bomb wreckage. Contrary to Whitehurst's analysis, the FBI put an unqualified lab technician on the stand to testify it was a urea bomb. Winders performed a double-blind test to show a urea nitrate mixture made from fertilizer had properties identical to those of urine. Winders' analysis was submitted to the court. The lab technician who testified conceded that he couldn't tell the difference. And though the suspects were convicted, the episode embarrassed the FBI, who relieved Winders of his duties and assigned him to another section of the lab. He filed suit alleging violation of whistleblower statutes. And they settled out of court for $1.16 million. 1997, Whitehurst achieved vindication when the Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Justice ordered a major revamp of the crime lab based on the 1993 case. As a result, uh, the lab implemented 40 major reforms, including an accreditation uh, process to prevent future lapses. Well, you know, every agency has... Um, Inspectors who are supposed to make sure the rules are followed. But what happens when the inspectors become part of the good old boy system? Now, I'm dealing with that right now with the Department of Veterans Affairs. And, uh, you know, they have allowed felonies to take place. And it's okay because the guy that did it is such a wonderful guy. You have to wonder about 
an agency that allows the people they're supposed to be protecting to be victimized. And I wasn't going to talk about any of this on the show, but they have become so arrogant in making it clear that they don't have a problem protecting a wrongdoer. Well, from that, let's turn to what you might call a royal toast. In the 1500s, when Henry VIII yanked England away from the Catholicism because he wanted a divorce and wanted to marry a younger woman, the people who stayed with the Catholic Church were accused of being traitors. James I inherited the throne in 1603. Persecution continued. Priests were expelled from the country, and Catholics who didn't attend Anglican services were fined. One fellow Catholic named Robert Gates, uh, Catesby launched a plot to change all that. In 1604, he gathered a band of folks together, including a man named Guy Fawkes, a formidable soldier and explosive expert, and rented a cellar in the Parliament building. The idea was when the king addressed the legislators, Fawkes would blow up the building. Others would kidnap James's younger daughter Elizabeth and force her to rule as their puppet and Catholic queen, of course. Well, in October 1605, Fawkes had hidden 36 barrels of gunpowder in the cellar, and the conspirators were all set to give the king an explosive surprise on November 5th when he was to address Parliament. But an anonymous letter alerted the House of Lords to stay away from the Parliament building that day. So instead of blowing up the building on November 5th, Fawkes was captured and tortured until he finally admitted to the plot. Catesman and his men were hunted down, and those who weren't immediately killed were drawn and quartered. King James made November 5th a holiday because uncovering the plot saved his life, so everybody was supposed to be happy. Today, the English still celebrate Guy Fawkes Night with bonfires and fireworks, but uh, history does remember it as one of the world's most famous fizzled terror plots. You know, one place that's never been really talked about was where the plot was hatched, and it was in a gatehouse of a manor house in England called Ashby St. Ledger. I almost bought it one time. Should have. Well, you know, there was a real soprano on the TV show, The Sopranos. Tony Sirico played Polly Walnuts Gautieri on The Sopranos. He's probably the only soprano star whose real-life rap sheet is as long as that of the mobster character he played. He was arrested 28 times for robbery and other crimes as a young man. He was serving time in New York Sing Sing Prison in the early 70s when an ex-con uh, acting troupe called the Theater of the Forgotten stage to play there. He told an interviewer in 2003, I was truly captured by the magic of the performance. It was the major step in me getting my life straight. After he was released, he called a friend, actor Richard uh, Castellano, who played uh, monster Peter Clemenza in the 72 film, The Godfather, and asked for help breaking into acting. And Castellano helped him land a part in the 1974 mob film, Crazy Joe. He said, that film got me a Screen Actors Guild card, which gave me a life instead of a life sentence. Says he got the best advice of his career at his very first acting class. I was his 30-year-old ex-con villain, sitting in a class filled with fresh-faced, serious drama students. Instructor leaned over to me after I did a scene and whispered, Tony, leave the gun home. 
what he meant uh, was for him to also leave his former life behind to be an actor. And, you know, when you've carried a, a weapon most of your life, you feel naked without it. Well, you know, the term CSI, besides being the, the name of a hit TV show, is supposed to mean crime scene investigator. But when you're dealing with the Keystone Cops members of the police force, it can also mean contaminating the scene investigator. Police in southern Germany failed that a female serial killer was on the loose. After comparing evidence gathered over a period of 15 years, they noticed the same woman's DNA was present at 40 crime scenes, linking her to dozens of robberies and three murders. It wasn't until 2009 that the police made a major breakthrough in that case. The matching uh, DNA samples did not come from the evidence. They came from the cotton swabs been used to collect it. They concluded that a batch of cotton had been accidentally contaminated by a female worker at the factory many, many years before. The crimes involved remain unsolved. And an interesting note, you know, a lot of actors love to, to tout their criminal connections. Did you know Frank Sinatra was arrested twice for the same crime? 1938, he was first arrested in Hackensack and charged with seduction. When it was discovered the lady in question was married, the charges were dropped. A month later, the police, who'd got their heads together, arrested Sinatra again for the same encounter. On this time, the crime was adultery. Those charges were eventually dismissed as well. So, in, in truth... Frank Sinatra did, in fact, have a criminal history. You know, the 1960s were famous for student protest marches. I talked about some of that earlier, and lifestyles of sex and drugs and rock and roll. 1968, West Germany student Gudrun Esselin and her boyfriend Andreas Bade added violence to the menu. In their anger at what they saw as the sins of capitalism, they set free. Uh, they set fire to two department stores. Better with the jail, but uh, escaped with the help of a anti-establishment journalist named Yuriki Meinhof. Nineteen seventy, Batter, Insulin, Meinhof, along with their young middle-class followers, launched a revolution. Called themselves the Red Army Faction. Oh. Most people, they were simply the Batter-Meinhof gang. You know, professing support for the Palestinian cause and their plans to bring an end to the Vietnam War, the Red Army faction robbed banks, kidnapped people, bombed military buildings, and murdered anybody who got in their way. Even blew up the offices of a newspaper that gave them bad press. Over 1976, Meinhof had hung herself in prison, and Batter and Insulin were both behind bars. Only spurred more violence as the rest of the gang tried to free their leaders. By 1976, the battle went international as the German autumn. Uh, in September, the RAF, Red Army faction, don't you know, kidnapped Hans Martin Swever, 
powerful businessman with a Nazi past and demanding their leaders released in exchange for Slever's life. October 13th, their Palestinian allies hijacked a German Lufthansa 757, threatened to blow up the plane and the passengers and left the, unless the Red Army faction's demands were met. After a grim five-day standoff, a unit of German commandos managed to kill the hijackers and liberate the passengers. Now, when Batter and Insulin learned that the hijacking had failed, they, they took their lives in a suicide pact, one by gunshot and the other by hanging, though the government's role in their deaths is still, um, shall we say, uh, being discussed. Red Army faction pulled off more bombings and assassinations, but its power diminished and support from students faded. 1998, the Red Army faction formally dissolved and sent one last message. The revolution says, I was, I am, and I will be again. Well, when you got students who believe that capitalism, the system that is upon which the free world is based, is evil and everybody ought to have the same thing, which is known as communism. If they come out of their mother's basement long enough to view the world as it really is, they know that both systems have flaws. And it's awful hard to get people to follow your instructions with a gun to their head because when you remove the gun, they quit following your instructions. Well, you know, I've talked about the Keystone Cops and various other uh, things that poke um, at police, but let's talk about an actual police scandal. Specifically, it's the Cleveland police scandal. 44 police in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Well, according to the story, January 21st, 1998, the FBI completed a two-year investigation into organized crime in Cleveland. They staged the biggest sting operation in their history, at least to that point. And most of the people arrested were police. What agents discovered during the initial stages of the investigation was a network of police officers and several different agencies who had been taking payoffs to protect and take part in major drug smuggling operations. Leader of the ring uh, corrections officer Well, you have to excuse me, there's a uh, a local cat that loves to antagonize my uh, the members of my peanut gallery. And when they go on their barking jags, I have to get up and stop them. Oh, we were talking about the Cleveland police scandal. The leader of the, the ring was a corrections officer and mobster wannabe named Michael Guido Joy. He once told an undercover agent, these guys I have working for me, we're, we're a specialty like a goon squad. Well, the operation, the undercover operation by the FBI, resulted in the felony conviction and prison sentences of 30 Cleveland area police, including Joy. During the course of the operation, the FBI staged a fake mafia induction ceremony. 
during which Officer Joy had to kneel on the floor in front of a table covered with white cloth and candles to be sworn in as a made man. Police who, uh, one officer who later testified against Joy said he came out white as a ghost. He said he was in the mafia now. He totally believed it. Well, I know a lot of mafia wannabes. Well, you know, sometimes life imitates art. With similarities to the 1999 remake of the Thomas Crown Affair, a bank robber staged a daring heist in October 2008. And just like in the film, he used human decoys to steal cash from a Bank of America, Monroe, Washington. And prior to the robbery, he put an ad in Craigslist for road maintenance workers telling them to show up outside the bank at 11 a.m. for a well-paid gig. And many recruits arrived wearing yellow vests, blue shirts, and safety goggles. The crooks slipped in among them, wearing the same clothing, snuck up on a guard, removing money from an armored truck, hosed him down with pepper spray, grabbed a bag of cash, and made a run for it. Even crazier, the crook escaped by floating down the Sikikamas River on an inner tube. Authorities later found his getaway vehicle on a riverbank, but uh, he was long gone. Never was caught. In a 2010 film, The Town, a group of thieves rob a Boston bank while wearing some creepy nun mask. Next spring, two crooks did the same thing in Illinois. They burst into a TCF bank branch just before closing time, wearing masks like those in the film. Jumped over the counters and four staff members entered a vault, stuffed a bunch of cash in a gym bag, and made their escape in a getaway car. They weren't caught either. 2010, a man dressed as a, a Sith Lord strolled into a chase branch on Long, I in, uh, on Long Island in New York, pointed a gun at a clerk, left with a few stacks of cash. Last spotted fleeing on foot through the bank's parking lot. And as security camera footage later showed, the robber's costume didn't match up with the, the suit Darth Vader wears in the film. He made do with a blue cape instead of a black one and a pair of camouflage pants. I don't think Darth Vader wore that. Well, after Cody Johnston, who's all of 22 years old, of Bozeman, Montana, was fined 195 for a traffic violation, a court computer error turned it into a conviction for deviant sexual behavior. That's the way it appeared in the crime report in a high country independent press where Johnston's parents read it. When he told him it wasn't true, his wife and his sister accused him of being in denial and urged him to seek counseling. And even though the independent press printed a correction, Johnston filed a libel suit against the paper in the court system, noting, uh, I heard every sheep joke you can imagine. Now, when, you know, when the government makes a mistake, they want you to just overlook it. If you make a mistake, you're going to jail, son. Well, Michael Zadai, 21-year-old man from Bedford Township in Michigan, wanted by police for some number of outstanding warrants. In a private message on the department's Facebook page, he said, uh, if your next post gets a 1,000 shares, I'll turn myself in along with a dozen donuts. That's a promise. 
police decided to take up the bet. They posted a screenshot of Zadell's offer along with this message, donuts. He promised us donuts. You know how much we love donuts. Didn't take long for the post to mass and then surpass a thousand shares. And true to his word, Zadell showed up at the police station with a box of donuts. And although they were much appreciated and immediately disappeared into the crowd, the uh, the treats didn't get him any leniency, and he spent the next uh, 39 days in jail. And I doubt they refunded the cost of the donuts. Well, San Diego Superior Court Judge Patricia Cookson officiated the wedding of Dane Desbrow and Destiny Winters. Well, happens every day. That doesn't sound all that strange, but... There was something strange about it. Desbrow had shackles around his ankles because a few minutes earlier, Judge Cookson had sentenced him to life in prison for first-degree murder. Now, she did have the good sense to have the victim's family escorted out of the courtroom first. Desbrow and the winners were high school sweethearts who'd lost contact for nearly 20 years until Desbrow went on trial in 2013 for a murder he was supposed to commit in 2003. He claimed it was self-defense. The uh, jury found him guilty. During a two-month trial, the Hubbards uh, rekindled their romance. Desbrow prospered and Winter uh, proposed, prospered, proposed, and Winter said yes. And they asked Judge Cookson to officiate, no matter what the outcome of the trial was. Judge agreed and even baked the cake, especially for the occasion. But instead of going on a honeymoon, Desbrow went to uh, prison and. Winters went home. Didn't say who officiated over the divorce, don't you know? Well, you know, well known in the, as the bane of email users everywhere, the old Nigerian prince trick has actually been scamming people long before the internet age. You know, the, the con is rather simple. Someone is in trouble, especially in Nigeria. That's where the name comes from, but other countries are also used. The person allegedly a wealth, wealthy refugee is blindly contacting somebody outside the country asking for help. Subject line of the email is usually something like urgent business transaction. The writer's very polite and sounds desperate and got a lot of money, but it's tied up in a bank. And the authorities are after him, sometimes because of a political uprising in his home country, sometimes because of the actions of a dictator. So he really has to be discreet. And if you'll help him by making a donation, you'll get a large sum of money for your trouble as soon as he's free. Send a few thousand dollars now, and you'll be rewarded with a whole lot more. Well, for many folks, the Nigerian scam sounds just too good to be true. Others think it's too good to pass up. Some people lose a few hundred dollars, but some... Oh, they, they go for it, hook, line, and sinker. Victims have been lured to Nigeria and elsewhere to collect their imaginary winnings and wound up in lots of trouble. U.S. State Department issued warnings about people who travel to meet the people behind the emails and end up beaten and subjected to threats and extortion, and in some cases even murdered. Well, if you report a Nigerian scam to the government, you'll be referred to the Secret Service. Established in 1865 to deal with the counterfeiting, the Secret Service protects a lot of America's financial interests, in addition to protecting the president. 
Local Secret Service officer handled the case, but these crimes are notoriously difficult to solve. First, the authorities uh, have to find the perpetrator and then transport him to the victim's country for prosecution. Nigeria established the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission in 2003 to combat the problem and to improve the country's image in the global community. That's uh, Their credibility has taken a major hit. 2006, the Financial Crimes Commission, uh, or Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, I should say, announced it would start punishing Internet service providers in Nigeria if they helped the scammers complete uh, their cons. Penalty for not taking proper security measures up to, is up to 20 years in prison. Still, some scammers find a way to circumvent the laws. Con artists have been able to target people who've contacted the EFCC to report being scammed. Posing as EFCC representatives, uh, they get personal information out of past victims and use that to access bank accounts. Nigeria, of course, would love to put this scandal and its name behind them, but until then, uh, beware the email that begs for help and promises huge rewards in return. I knew a um, an Englishman, a very shrewd businessman, who fell for one of these. In fact, he took a second mortgage on his home and flew to Nigeria with $100,000 in a briefcase. Um... As soon as he hit the ground, the money was confiscated, and he was arrested. It took him oh, two or three years to get back to England, but it all started with a letter from a Nigerian prince. And you never can tell, is the individual on the other end of that uh, email a prince, a pauper, a criminal? Just what is he? Well, we come to the end of today's show and to the end of the shows for the week. So until Monday at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great weekend.